Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. And if we don't work to develop a new organizing system, then essentially the history indicates that we're going to centralize more. And that's what we're seeing now with COVID. We're centralizing more, we're building walls, you know, we're, 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 we're sending troops to our own cities. You know, these are signs of increased centralization in the face of collapse. Tony Siba gets a lot of things right. The world-renowned thought leader, entrepreneur, educator, and author accurately predicted the rapid decline in solar and lithium-ion battery costs. He also predicted the collapse of the coal industry and oil prices. Now, he's out with a new book that predicts the 2020s will be the most disruptive decade in history. Not just in terms of energy technology, but across every major industry in the world today. This disruption will have major implications for policymaking and geopolitics, and ultimately humanity as a whole. In this episode, we talk to Tony Siba about the emergence of a new production system, the collapse of incumbents, and what this all means for the future of civilization. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues, and for today, also societal transformations in America and around the globe, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And with me from across Los Angeles is Brandon Hurlbut, my co-host. He is a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. Hi, Brandon. How you doing on this uh, Thursday? Great, Julia. How's the new house? How'd the move go? Yes, uh, it went well. You know, moves are always difficult and tiring, but I'm so glad to have space. I literally don't live in an actual garage anymore, a reformed garage. (laughs) And I have a smart thermostat now and a drought tolerant lawn. I feel very eco-friendly. Whereas I was eco-friendly before, but because I didn't have air conditioning, a dishwasher or heat or any of that stuff. (laughs) So very exciting. Thank you for asking. Um, so our co-host Shane Skelton is actually out on vacation this week. Uh, so no, he's in hiding, Julia. He's in hiding. He's in hiding. You know why? Well, he yeah, can't, due uh... to the you know all Republicans should be ashamed of the way they're running the country right now. So I think uh, he's hiding in shame. That could be it. That could be it. We'll check in with him when he comes back. Uh, well, it's really too bad for him, though, that he's missing out on our on our interview this week because we have a really fantastic guest, Mr. Tony Siba. Welcome to you. Thank you for coming on Political Climate. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for having me. So for those of our listeners who may not know, Tony Siba is a world-renowned thought leader, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, educator, and the author of Amazon's number one best-selling book, Clean Disruption of Energy and Transportation, How Silicon Valley Will Make Oil, Nuclear, Natural Gas, Coal, Electric Utilities, and Conventional Cars Obsolete by 2030. 
Tony's work focuses on the convergence of technologies, business models, and product innovations that will disrupt the world's major industries. He's an early employee of disruptive companies, including Cisco Systems and RSA Data Security. As a speaker, he's delivered keynotes for major companies and at events all over the world, including Davos, COP21, and the Global Leaders Forum. Tony's taught thousands of entrepreneurs and corporate leaders at Stanford University continuing studies, and he's the co-founder of Rethink X, an independent think tank that analyzes and forecasts the speed and scale of technology-driven disruption and its implications across society. A lot there, but I wanted to get it all in. Uh, so... <laughs> Tony, you just published a book recently in the recent weeks called Rethink Humanity. The full title is Rethink Humanity, Five Foundational Sector Disruptions, the Life Cycle of Civilizations and the Coming Age of Freedom. I was both hopeful yes. and depressed reading through this, I have to say. Um, but I want to just start off with a bit of an overview. You know, you begin this book by talking about this imminent fundamental shift in five sectors, information, energy, food, transportation, materials, what is the fundamental shift that you're talking about? Yeah, so all of these sectors, um, what we uh, see as the five fundamental sectors of the economy, information, technologies, energy, transport, food, and materials. Every time in history, uh, and we went back 10,000 plus years ago, when we have seen a 10x improvement in the cost um, of these five foundational sectors, we have seen also a civilizational disruption, which means that the incumbent collapses. There's hundreds of years, maybe thousands of dark ages, um, and then another society from the edge of that empire rises, breaks through to be the new civilizational leader in the world. And we are on the cusp of that happening. Um, in our world, we see that over the next 10 to 15 years, um, in these five fundamental sectors, the costs will go down by about 10 times. And so because of that, and it's not just about cost, it's not just about getting more yield out of the existing resources. It's a fundamentally different production system, one that we call a system of creation. So instead of taking resources from nature and, and basically breaking it down, we're going to essentially build up what we need. And it's going to be based on information networks, distributed production, and, and transportation of these resources. And essentially, most regions around the world will be autonomous in terms of these fun foundational sectors going forward in the, into the 2030s. Um, so what is going to happen, if history is any indication, is that the leading civilizations, which for the last 500 years means Europe and America, are on the verge of collapse. And at the same time, another new civilization can emerge as essentially the, the, the new uh, world leader. And that, according to history, is going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years, no longer than that. So it's going to be, be a quick disruption, a quick transition. The 2020s are going to be incredibly unstable. 
Yeah, you say that the 2020s will be the most disruptive decade in history. Um, Correct. You also call it the potential age of freedom, but then you just describe this potentially, you know, devastating, disruptive, uncertain period as well. So which is it? Is is it this age of enlightenment and freedom or is it a a moment of potential devastation and dark ages? Yeah, so it can be both. It can be either. Um, So the production system right the way that we generate energy and uh, transportation and food and materials and so on is going to be uh, it's going to allow us because it's going to be 10x cheaper than what it is now within 10 uh, years or so the american dream if you will um, you know the energy that we consume housing transport and so on that collectively mean the American dream can be had for about $250 per month and of local generation. And that means that we're going to be have freedom from the need to toil, from the need to fight every day just to meet our basic needs. Uh, and that's what we call freedom. It's freedom from need, freedom from inequality, from fear. All our basic needs are going to be there. Now, one of the things that we found from history is that technology alone, these 10x uh, disruptions in technology alone are not sufficient for a new civilization to emerge, to break through. What uh, leading civilizations from Sumer to Egypt to Rome have done is create organizing systems, laws, regulation, ways of seeing the world and so on that were adaptive to the new production system, to the new 10x production system. Um, So whereas we can predict with a fair degree of confidence that all of these systems are going to enable 10x improvements in, you know, delivering very cheap proteins, for instance, and kilowatt hours and vehicle miles traveled and so on, at $250, for instance, a month uh, for all our basic needs, it doesn't, it can't predict what the new organizing system is going to be. Um, and because that emerges, uh, you can't predict, so, so it's emergent. Um, so what we would need to do is guide the organizing system over the next 10 or 15 years so that it can be one of two things. One is the age of freedom in which we will have, you know, basically all our needs met at the local level without the need to, you know, burn all the earth. Or we could have a, an organizing system where we're controlled by information networks. So imagine Facebook and companies like that, basically information networks, be controlling our food system, our food generation, and our food transportation system. Um, that does not look pretty that would not be a pretty system. So even if we can meet our basic needs, that's a very dystopian uh, uh, existence, right? It's gonna be more like a matrix than it is an age of freedom. So we have, we see three possibilities ahead. One is total collapse, right? Um, And then we have two possibilities. One is very cheap uh, needs uh, met um, uh, in, in one of two ways, freedom or dystopian. Those are the three possibilities that we see. And we're on the cusp of essentially all three uh, possibly happening. 
like I said, I was both uh, hopeful and depressed reading through this. So who do you see emerging? Yes. What countries out of that disruption, Tony? Who set up for that uh, versus, you know, who is going to have challenges dealing with this disruption? Yeah. Um, so disruption at, at a civilizational level happens. Uh, well, this is one of the findings. Uh, disruptions at the civilization, at the societal level, has the same patterns as disruption at the sector level. So if you if if you know if you see disruption at the sector level, companies incumbents have a hard time disrupting themselves. They just cannot do it. Um, so we've seen from you know recent uh, disruptions that you know incumbents Nokia and, and and BlackBerry and so on could not build the new smartphone system, and it was two companies from the outside from outside the telecom industry, Apple and Google, which built the new smartphone infrastructure and they own 90 plus percent of that market. So the lesson of disruption at the sector level is that disruptions happen from the outside. So in, in that case, it was Google and, and Apple, right? And we're seeing that in, in electric vehicle, right? It was not an incumbent OEM that essentially broke through in terms of EVs. It's a company like Tesla, someone who comes from the outside. So at the civilizational level, the lesson of history um, is that incumbents are unable to break through to the next level. Not a single society has been a civilizational leader and broken through to the next level. The pattern is they collapse and then someone else. Um, so let's take the example of Rome. Rome was the, you know, the, the, the biggest, most powerful um, uh, society on earth at the time. Um, they collapsed. There was a, a thousand years of dark ages in, in Europe. And then essentially uh, countries on the edge of the Roman Empire, countries that were quote unquote barbarians in Roman era, Spain, Portugal, Britain, uh, Holland, and so on, became world leaders. And then America, right? So uh, Britain was on the edge of the Roman Empire. They rose, they broke through. And at the time, I mean, Europe was the poorest, most violent, most ignorant place in the world. And they broke through to dominate the world over the next you know, 500 years. Um, and America was on the edge of the British Empire and we broke through to be the world leader in the, in the 20th century. So the lesson of that is that societies, especially the, the incumbents, have a hard time adapting because the, the organizing system gets embedded in the infrastructure and gets embedded in the production system. And the things that were important for success essentially are not anymore. So, you know, in, in the industrial order, which is what we call the last 500 years, scale in terms of resources, size were important. Centralization was important, but that is actually going to be not just you know, not important is going to be a liability. So one of the things that we've seen, for instance, um, during the COVID disruption is that um, uh, our centralized system was unable to cope. We have seen how fragile our centralized system can be when there is a disruption. Um, and we can get into, into all those details. So the lesson of history is this, someone from the edge of you know the American empire, the European 
the industrial order empire, which you know can adopt the production system, solar, wind, battery, you know, uh, transport as a service, and so on, um, and guide the organizing system to fit into this new production system. So it's going to have to be adaptive regions. I'm not talking about countries, but regions. Um, so, you know, in, 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 if you look at some, any of a thousand cities and regions could do it. Examples, Israel has a really adaptive system. Um, you know, they have a production system that, you know, essentially is very adaptive and so on. Singapore, which has come, you know, in the past generation or two from being a poor country to being one, one of the world's leaders, Dubai and so on. So systems that can adapt quickly to new technologies. But in fact, it could be anyone. It could be Lagos. It could be Mexico City. Um, it could be, in fact, it won't be China. It won't be Europe and it won't be America. Those are the current world leaders, the incumbents with, you know, industrial order sizing system. Having said that, California could, Seattle could, right? Shanghai could, Shenzhen could. So these regions could, if they had, you know, the right, you know, opportunity, they could experiment just like, you know, America experimented with federalism in the uh, 19th century and China experimented with uh, special economic zones over the last 40 years. And they experimented with, with different ones and then they copy pasted from one to the other, right? Um, and so if there is a country, uh, which is unlikely, but if they make it happen so that they decentralize decision-making, resource-making and so on, then they, they have a chance. They have a chance, uh, but, but history would indicate that the winners are gonna be on the edge of the current empire. So you mentioned regions succeeding, but uh, you know a country usually is what kind of bears the flag, if you will. Um, and I guess we're talking about regions succeeding, being at the leading edge. But you do talk about the rise of China in rethinking humanity. So I am curious to know at that national level, even if it's not the entire country being at the forefront of innovation, is there not an opportunity here for China to become the hegemon, like putting it in current geopolitical understandings of things? How do you how do you tackle that? Um, so China, the, the, the so again, incumbent systems, incumbent, um, you know, the existing winner the, in the industrial order, centralized organizing systems have been the winner. Um, and that's Beijing and that's Washington and that's, you know, a combination Brussels and so on in, in Europe and so on, right? So uh, these countries have been more and more centralized. They have achieved more and more scale of resources, lands, and, and so on and so forth. So in order for these countries to um, emerge, so it's one thing for a country like China to essentially copy, paste the organizing system in a, you know from America and the West and make it work regionally. And that's what they did in the special economic zones. Um, but what they needed was a centralized uh, uh, organizing system, governance system, and so on. What they would need to do in this new system is totally decentralized. And, and what that could mean, for instance, just to give you an idea of how difficult it's going to be, that means giving each region the right, for instance, to have 
immigration on their own. So imagine California or Shanghai having its own immigration policy. So we could, for instance, allow immigrants to California, right, um, without necessarily asking the federal government for permission. Another, because every leading civilization had, including the United States, until the 1920s, had open immigration. That is key to rising in the age of freedom. Another thing, for instance, can they have their monetary system? Do you imagine, you know, um, uh, Beijing allowing Shanghai to have its own currency, for instance, right? I mean, that's hard to imagine. Um, or, you know, Washington allowing California to have its own currency. But these are things that we would need to have because, you know, these regions would need to experiment to see what works. And then, I mean, the center could orchestrate this in the sense that, you know, in the U.S., we could have 50 regions or 100 regions, each one of which had its own currency, its own immigration policy, its own housing policy, and so on. And when Washington sees one working, then we can copy paste across the board. But it's more, right? So it's, it's not that our decisions are going to go through Washington. It's more orchestrating, more uh, enabling uh, these regions to experiment at the regional level to see what works. And then um, that learning can essentially be spread to, to the other regions. If Washington or Beijing or Brussels can do that, then some region within those basically uh, economies could rise, could break through to the next, to be the next world leader. Tode, I want to talk to you about, you know, decentralization versus centralization in energy. But, but first, I just want to say, you know, for our listeners, um, you know, I wear many hats and, you know, because this is a political podcast, I, I, I always focus on the political and policy side, but I actually spend most of my day working with two uh, climate investment funds. And so Tony has been a big inspiration on my investment thesis and how I see the world. I've watched so many of his presentations um, and you've made so many predictions about, uh, you know, cost curves, adoption of technologies, particularly in clean energy and mobility. Um, what have you gotten right and what have you gotten wrong? Because one thing I think I share with, I'm very rosy. And when I do the investing, I always have to surround myself with people that are more glass half empty, uh, more skeptics to, to, to balance out my optimism. Uh, but for instance, you said you thought we would have 12 gigafactories uh, by 2020. So what do you think you've gotten right in the last few years? What do you think you've gotten wrong? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, what I, my work on disruption is about, you know, forecasting the speed and scale of disruption. My work is not about, you know, being exactly precise on a year by year basis. If I am, then that's great. Um, but, you know, when I published Clean Disruption, the, you know, the mainstream world was talking about, for instance, you know, the world going from a billion cars to two billion cars. And, you know, I was saying, no, uh, you know, by 2020, we will hit peak new cars. Um, and we did that, right? I mean, the world did not, you know, go to billion to billion cars. We already hit peak new car, period. Um, you know, the idea was that uh, for electric vehicles to make it into the mainstream, it's going to take, you know, to 2050 plus, and it's going to require a lot of government subsidies and so on. And I did the cost curve and I said, actually, no, this is going to happen for purely economic reasons. The tipping point is going to happen around 2021, 
right? And not only are we not going to have to subsidize EVs, we're going to get money back, actually. So we're going to make the, the transition. Uh, so all of those have been right on the money. Solar as the cheapest form of energy by 2020, that's been on the money without subsidies. Uh, EVs reaching about $30,000 for a 200-mile EV, that's been on the money. Um, I you know, forecast that oil prices would crash to about $25 a barrel 2021. Guess what? We did it this year because of another disruption. Um, so those are really macro uh, uh, predictions, huge predictions that have been you know, exactly on the money. So when I say that by 2030, you know, and I've been saying that for years, as you know, um, essentially, you know, the conventional energy and transportation industry would be disrupted. Uh, I have meant that it's going to be over by 2030, right? It's going to be over. I mean, um, for purely economic reasons, and we're going to get money back. Um, and we're not going to need governments to enable that. We're going to essentially, the, the key idea is that governments should get out of the way uh, to, to help enable these markets. And I mean, on, on all of those things have been right on the money. Um, and, and we have seen all of those things happen already. Tony, uh, on EVs, you know, one of the things I, I really loved about your presentation is, is you show that, you know, a traditional internal combustible uh, engine vehicle has 2000 moving parts and an EV has like 18, right? Uh, and so it's so much more, uh, it's a better, better machine. Um, have you been surprised at how hard it's been uh, or maybe challenging to scale up the manufacturing when there's so many less parts? I mean, Elon said he went through manufacturing hell. I'm very excited about medium duty EV trucks, but nobody's been able to mass produce a medium duty EV truck. There's lots of plans to do it. Lots of great companies out there trying, but have you been surprised at how hard it's been to scale the manufacturing side? Yeah, I actually haven't. I mean, uh, in, in clean disruption in 2014, um, I said exactly that. I said that uh, Tesla's biggest challenge was manufacturing. Um, you know, and I said this six years ago. And I mean, you know, Tesla never manufactured 100,000, let alone, you know, a million cars a year. And this is a, you know, I mean, the, the linear view of of manufacturing is that you know, an EV is just, you know, an internal combustion engine, take out the engine and put in a battery and, 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 and a motor. And it's not like that at all. This is a computer on wheels. It's a totally new manufacturing uh, system. And the manufacturing operation um, needs to be built around the product. I mean, that's the way that, you know, an optimal manufacturing operation is. So I haven't been surprised that you know Tesla and other companies have gone through so many uh, issues, right? Because it's a totally new value chain. It's a totally new way to manufacture. But you know they're they're almost there. Um, and and what what I see, for instance, I mean if if you go back to Ford, right, in in the early 1900s, Ford's main competitive advantage was actually manufacturing. It wasn't you know it was. It was process innovation, not product innovation. And once they got that, then you know they went on to get 50% of the market actually over the next 20 plus years. Um, so Tesla has gone through many iterations, just like Ford did 100 years ago, and now they had. Now they're almost there, right? And and one thing that um, 
you know, the world still doesn't see is that once you change manufacturing, right? I mean, the one of the issues with Tesla is that Tesla has been working on both product innovation and manufacturing innovation. And that's very hard, right? Usually companies do one at a time, but they've done it both at the same time, which is one of the reasons why the, you know, it's been, you know, such grief. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the more surprising thing is not the manufacturing, right? Now Tesla can copy paste any of their factories and build a new one in Berlin in, in less than a year, build a new one in Austin in, in less than a year or in Shanghai. So now they got it, right? Uh, and they're still improving. So one of the things, for instance, that we see from Tesla is that the new uh, Tesla factory in Austin, right, um, is going to need about 10 times lower capital expenditure to build the factory, right? Um, so it's going to be some pretty part too, right? They have a pretty part to do. <laughs> um, so, so basically, if if you thought that the product EVs are disruptive and they are, now manufacturing is going to be disruptive. So the cost curve for EVs, it's and when I say EVs, I mean cars and trucks and light duty vehicles, right? It's going to keep going down and it's going to accelerate. And and you know the other side of that coin is that incumbent OEMs are having a hard time catching up because they're also going to have to innovate both on the product side and on the manufacturing side. This is not a one-to-one -one substitution of the old system. It's a brand new system uh, of production. Um, so, you know, you heard, for instance, Audi's CEO saying that Tesla was two years ahead, right? I think that's conservative. I think Tesla is, you know, way ahead of that. But even if it's two, three years, that is two product cycles in EV line, right? Um, and it, it's going to be hard to compete with, with a company that has already built both. Um, so, you know, the, the most surprising part, again, is not Tesla's issues with manufacturing. I, I knew that. Um, but the fact that the OEMs gave Tesla 10 years before they actually started going all electric. That is the most surprising part, um, and, and, and which means that they're going to have a really hard time catching up, if at all. Do you have a full market for, say, EVs if there's only one real leader? Like, don't we need the other companies to get on board for there to be truly mass adoption? Everyone keeps talking about the market will take off when there are more models, when there are more models. So one company can't meet everybody's needs all the time in all circumstances all around the globe. So does this disruption happen with one company or are we just still at that bottom level of the transition that you talk about in your disruption curve where we're just not seeing the real takeoff yet can you address that because it feels like for me covering evs we're still kind of waiting for numbers to really get to a, an impressive stage it's happening but not as fast as i feel like people were telling me five years ago at that point it felt like we were on the precipice of this market acceleration uh, this hockey stick with this new generation of evs coming out but Flash forward to just this past June, and I'm writing about how policy dependent the global EV market is based on Bloomberg New Energy Finance data. And the outlook for EVs is looking kind of rocky, at least in the near term. So how do you think about this? Is this just a demonstrative of where we are in the curve of innovation and adoption? Or is there something else going on here? 
Yeah, um, I don't know what people were saying five years ago. Um, I mean, basically, my predictions have been on pretty much on the money. Um, and 2021 is going to be the tipping point, in my uh, opinion. And um, can one company do it? Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you look, so, so let's look at the history. I mean, in Detroit had just about 200 uh, car companies in the early 1900s. And that turned into five, and that turned into three, right? Um, so going from 200 car companies to four, getting 50% of that market, uh, and then GM and Chrysler and so on, uh, basically catching up. And, and, and so in the end, there were three companies uh, after all of that disruption, right? So can one company do it? Probably not, but one company can dominate. Um, and maybe not in all markets, but, um, you know, it, there's no need to, you know, we have 200 EV companies now. What the reason we need 200 companies is not that 200 companies are going to survive, they're not, but the more they invest in the infrastructure, in making batteries, in making EVs, uh, essentially, the cost curve goes down ex super exponentially. So the more more competition, the lower the cost, the more the investment, you know, all these feedback loops, right? The more talent goes into that industry. And so th th there's a feedback loop. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, we're going to have a whole number of companies um, doing this. But in the end, viewing these as just, um, you know, transportation with a battery, is, uh, you know, not enough, right? I mean, um, the, this, these are, EVs are computers on wheels. And when you look at EVs that way, then the way you look at the market is totally different. So if you look at the history of computing, most recently, for instance, uh, with the smartphone, we see, for instance, that there are dozens of companies around the world making physical smartphones. But the operating systems of smartphones, uh, we have two that dominate more than 90% of the market, iOS and uh, Android. And we have in the PC world, we have two operating systems that dominate that, right? Windows and, 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 and Apple Mac. Um, there is usually a third, Linux or whatever, but usually two operating systems dominate the market. And that's what's going to happen in electric vehicles. So when you look at them as a computer on wheels, you'll see that a lot of hardware companies are going to survive. But in terms of software, of the operating system, we're going to see two or three companies survive. Um, that's it because of the, um, uh, you know, the dynamics of, of, um, of network effects, in other words, for, for you know, a computing industry. Um, we may get more than two or three because, you know, one of the other things that may happen uh, in the near future is that the world's going to split, right? Um, you know, we're building up walls and whatever. So there may well be two, you know, uh, two or three companies in the West and two or three operating systems in China, right, over the next 10, 15 years. But not more than that. Um, there's going to be a lot of hardware manufacturers, but the spoils are going to go to the winner of the operating system race. That is the most important race in the uh, essentially EV disruption. Tony, I'm curious um, how you see the power generation market uh, playing out. You've talked about decentralization. We're seeing 
really exciting uh, developments in the distributed energy resource space uh, where lithium ion batteries, the cost of coming down, you've talked a lot about that. So you can generate your own power and store it in your own home. Uh, but we also have to meet some really aggressive goals by 2030 uh, for climate uh, that the scientists are telling us. And we're also seeing some developments in long duration storage. Uh, you talk about the economics of being able to power or store energy at home versus the cost of transmission uh, and centralized generation. But if you have cheap solar and wind and cheap long duration storage, how do you see that uh, market playing out between distributed energy resources and uh, centralized renewables with long storage? Yeah, so, um, you know, essentially the way to find that out is to give consumers and to give businesses the right to generate, store, and sell electricity. You know, essentially, when there is an economic incentive, the right, not the, the, you know, we don't need to ask the utilities for permission. When we have the right to do that, then, you know, consumers and industry and so on are going to go with whatever makes economic sense. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the market has not um, looked at in terms of the distributed um, energy disruption, solar and batteries essentially, is um, the cost of transmission. So this is what I call God parity, so generation on demand parity. So folks talk about grid parity, which is when solar becomes cheaper than for consumers, than what we buy uh, on the grid. But, you know, for consumers, and, and, and that may mean commercial, industrial, as well as residential, um, there is a cost of transmission. And, you know, assume that that cost is seven cents, right? Just for um, argument's sake. Um, anytime that the cost of self-generation falls below seven cents, that's called parity. Essentially for me as a consumer, whether I'm Apple, or Amazon, uh, or a mall, or, or a residential consumer, when the cost of solar falls below, you know, six cents, five cents, I'm gonna go to solar plus storage for purely economic reasons, right? And if I can also take advantage of storage to, um, you know, save money and to sell to my neighbors and to sell to others across, you know, the street, so that I can make money, not just save money, but make money, then again, I have a, a huge economic incentive to go with solar. So um, that cost of transmission essentially means that the world is gonna go distributed for purely economic reasons. So even if you can generate on the utility side at zero, which of course is not possible. I mean, solar is getting there, but uh, you know, I mean, it's not gonna be exactly zero you always add that seven cents plus, you know, the cost of the, you know, CEO of the utility. And and, and so essentially, um, you, you know, when you fall below six or five cents, the world is gonna go distributed, boom, right? Um, so it's not gonna happen again for climate reasons, it's gonna happen for purely economic reasons. Now governments can enable this, can have, help accelerate this, but that decision is not about climate. That decision is a purely economic reason. What can governments do to accelerate it? We have so many policy listeners for the show. What, if you could wave a magic wand, what, what could the government do? 
So the most important thing is to stop subsidizing and protecting the incumbents. Um, so that means the government should get out of the energy business. Just get out of the energy business. Um, you know, basically, energy is, 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 you know, a business of pure regulatory capture. You know what that means? I mean, uh, uh, regulatory agencies, the public service, uh, youth, uh, uh, you know, organizations that are supposed to regulate energy companies on behalf of the people end up regulating people on behalf of the companies. And that happens in our centralized energy systems. So that's why you know governments need to get out of the way and design competitive market systems where anyone can store, anyone can generate, and anyone can sell to anyone. Um, so that means users, every citizen and every company has the right to generate, store the right, and just plug into the grid the way we plug into the internet, for instance. We don't have to ask anybody for permission to plug into the internet. The same way, we don't have to ask anyone for permission to drive an Uber around, right? So that's matter and that's information. Why do we have to ask anyone for permission to generate and store and sell electricity, right? So the centralized system that we have is 100 years old. Um, so give users energy rights. Two, break up the utilities. You know, essentially the utilities are there resisting the move to, um, you know, 100% solar plus battery plus wind. And, and that's going to be the, the system that is disruptive. Um, and so, you know, we need to break up the utilities into, you know, utility scale generation is one set of companies. Competitive, right? You know, transmission is another set of companies. And then distribution at the local level is another company. And then everybody generates. But distribution at the local level has a different business model for what we see today. Essentially, those companies need to make money on transactions. So anytime, so that their incentive is going to be for, you know, all users to generate electricity and sell it to their neighbors so that these you know distribution companies like uber or ebay make money on transactions um, so that would incredibly accelerate the disruption of um you know wind solar um, and batteries can i jump to the what other side of the ledger going yeah. to the, the the dirty energy side so one of your predictions i think was from 2017 in your rethinking transportation paper you talked about uh oil companies will quote write off or write down high cost assets cut capital expenditure and overhead and offload as many liabilities as possible preferably onto unsuspecting taxpayers here we are now in the midst of this pandemic we are seeing uh, lots of, of government money go to fossil fuel companies oil and gas companies changing the rules and Fact to allow them to pay off debts that they had previous to the pandemic. So you very much predicted this. I guess I'm just wondering uh, how you see this playing out on the fossil fuel side of the ledger. So you have these powerful entities, even nation states, right, that are so entrenched in the fossil fuel industry. So what does this look like geopolitically? What does it look like economically for those communities that relied on these resources? Because disruption has, you know, a wake to it. So what happens to that, that piece of it that falls out as we transition here? 
Yeah, I mean, for geopolitically, the disruption of oil is going to have major implications across the board. And, you know, oil uh, being the, the, the largest traded commodity, oil being the largest traded commodity in the world for the last hundred years, I mean, has determined, the, you know, has been the main determinant of geopolitics around the world, military conquests and, and you know, uh, patrolling shipping lanes and so on. So the disruption of oil will have massive implications, um, and and so what I predicted and what what is you know is happening with the COVID disruption is by 2021 we, we would see oil collapse, um, you know prices would collapse to about $25 per barrel and that has already happened, um, and companies would abandon basically uh, assets and 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 dump them uh, on 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 unsuspecting taxpayers. That's already happening. So the, the next leg is going to be at the world geopolitical level. So as the electric vehicle disruption proceeds and, um, you know, essentially over the next 10 years, we see that, you know, by 2030, there's going to be 30 million barrels um, drop in worldwide oil consumption. And that oil is going to be priced at about $25. So both the um, shrinking of the oil market and prices collapsed are going to have implications, different kinds of implications. One of them is, of course, that high cost assets are going to be stranded upfront in the early 2020s. So pipelines are going to be stranded. You, you know, uh, whole regions, Canada, oil sands stranded because nothing that um, is above $25 will be able to compete, period, right? Offshore uh, oil, sands, and even shale won't be able to compete. So those assets are going to be stranded like now. And there is also the price disruption, uh, which is going to, what does that mean for the world? Um, again, that means that only conventional oil is going to survive. So in Saudi Arabia, you can, you know, pump at Four dollars a barrel um, in in you know in in the Persian Gulf in in Russia and so on. So even at twenty five dollars, those countries will be able to produce and sell profitably. But any country that can't produce and sell at twenty twenty five will be wiped out. So that means countries like Venezuela, for instance. That means countries like Norway, that that like Canada, and so on. So it will affect each of those countries differently. So Norway and Saudi Arabia have, you know, sovereign wealth funds that is will be a buffer even if, uh, you know, when when oil prices go down. But countries like Mexico don't, and countries like Venezuela don't. So that's going to be a major disaster because the government makes most revenues from oil, right? So what happens when those revenues get wiped out? So it, it, it's not like they're going to go down by 30, 40%, they're going to be wiped out, right? Because, you know, their oil, no oil, no sands will be able to compete, right? So a lot of these countries are going to be like are going to zero and that's going to cause social unrest. That's going to cause out migration. And we're starting to see that in countries like Venezuela. And we're going to see that in other countries with high cost oil, right? They're not coming back. Um, another thing that's going to happen by the end of the 2020s 
as the EV disruption proceeds is that because the U.S. is going to be energy independent, right? Uh, essentially, that means that we're going to lose interest in the Middle East. We're going to lose interest. I mean, why would we want to spend hundreds of billions of dollars um, in military to protect energy you know, regions and to protect the, the, the shipping lanes um, if we don't need them, right? If, if, if they don't have the you know, strategic geopolitical value that they have now. So think about the idea that um, if and when America abandons the world's shipping lanes, not just shipping lanes for oil, all shipping lanes, right? We're going to be still the world's, you know, biggest military power, but we're going to be more strategic about where we um, have spend our money, right? Um, so when we get out of those regions from a military perspective, that's going to throw those regions into massive chaos. And that's geopolitical chaos. That's, again, social unrest. That is, you know, governments that, you know, will not meet education needs and social needs and, you know, and, and so on and so forth, even energy needs, social unrest, out migration. So it sounds so like there's a real it's, downside to this disruption. Just to play devil's advocate here, you know, why do we want this? Why wouldn't you want to stop this? If this is what progress it's is, inevitable. disruption is, <laughs> it sounds like it's a win. There are some winners. These regions you talked about at the beginning, there will be some winners. There'll be some companies. Some investors will make a lot of money off of low carbon technologies. But from a human perspective, what you just described sounds really awful. Well, I mean, um, yeah, for, for every disruption at both sector level and, and civilization level, there is collapse of the incumbents um, and there is the emergence and the breakthrough of the new system. Um, and that's happened every single time, right? Um, so we're going to see, we're already seeing the collapse of, you know, some of the industries that built the industrial order, coal, oil, cows, right, livestock. Um, you know, gas, um, uh, basically steel. These are the industries that built, you know, the industrial order and they're collapsing and they're collapsing before our very eyes. And at the same time, we see the new world emerging, right? Where we see, you know, uh, autonomous electric and on-demand transportation being 10 times cheaper than owning a car, 10 times cheaper. And what that means is that when that happens over the next few years, um, the average American is going to be able to save about $6,000 per year by not owning a car. So we're going to get more transportation without needing to own a car. We're going to make $6,000 a year, right? Which is a trillion dollars on, you know, on a, a basically a national level boost to the economy. And on top of that, we're going to get, get another trillion dollar boost by, um, you know, the, the, the productivity increase by not driving, for instance. Right. So we're going to go to a world where um, energy is going to be 10 times cheaper also. Right. So we're going to be autonomous in many ways. Food is going to be 10 times cheaper and it's going to be made locally. Right. So we will have over the next 10 years the ability to solve all, all 
of the world's most, quote-unquote, intractable issues, poverty, inequality, violence, uh, climate change, environmental degradation, you name it, uh, you know, I mean, food insecurity, malnutrition, at the same time, and get money back. How do you like that? Right? If, so, if you have the right from, operating principle, right? That's what you need. It's not just the technology, correct? So the technologies are going to deliver that. The technology, the production system is going to deliver that. What we need to do from the organizing system perspective, from the governance perspective, is two things. One is to accelerate that, to accelerate the new so that it can emerge as quickly as possible um, so that the collapse of, so in, in past ages, civilizations have first collapsed and then somebody breaks through. But we don't want that, right? What we want is we can't stop the collapse, but we can accelerate the emergence of the new. So that's one thing that we can do. At the same time, we need to protect people, not companies, not industries, because it's going to be, um, you know, insanely uh, unstable over the next decade. So we need to protect people, not companies, um, so that th this increasingly unstable system is not going to cause social unrest and, and so on and so forth. So while we can't stop the collapse, we can accelerate the new. That's what governments can do. As you're talking about this disruption, I was going to ask you about a prediction for 2030. Do you think the United States will be constructed with the 50 states, the boundaries that we have today in 10 years after all this disruption? Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll have the boundaries that we have today. Um, no doubt about it. Um, um, you know, the, 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 the relationship between the states and the regions and Washington will be dramatically different. So I don't see us, uh, you know, splitting up or anything over the next 10 years. I can't say that about, you know, the 2030s, but, but you know, I don't see the boundaries of either, you know, China or the U.S. or Europe necessarily shifting, not dramatically. I mean, you may have a Brexit here and there, but we won't see dramatic shifts outside. So, you know, what has happened in you know, previous societal disruptions is that societies actually go back to go back to the past, right? To revive some sort of golden era. And basically it turns in on itself. So, you know, it, it, it kind of stops growing outside the walls, if you will, and it shrinks in terms of, you know, its view goes inside into the past rather than outside into the future, right? Which is what you know, all, you know, growing empires have done in the past. And that's where we are now in the United States. So we're building walls, right? We're, we're turning inwards and backwards instead of turning, you know, into the future and outwards and, and so on, uh, forwards. Um, but I don't see the, uh, you know, the U.S. splitting up anytime soon. But I do see the relationship between the center, Washington, and the edge, places like California, Seattle, and so on, change dramatically. 
But what does that change look like? Is it is it more decentralized, uh, more like a classic federalism where uh, you know less power in DC and and more states act as laboratories, act as their own? How, how does how do you think it looks? What does it look like? Yeah. So what 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 the production system is going to mean um, is when regions when regions California, New England, you know, uh, Texas, and so on can achieve 100% of their energy generation, uh, basically locally with solar, wind, and batteries, with, which you know should be, will be solar, wind by 2030 or so. Um, they Once they seed that system, once they built that system, by, say by 2030, energy, they're going to be autonomous from an energy perspective. They're going to be autonomous from a transportation perspective. They're going to be autonomous from a food perspective, right? I mean, every all food major is going to be created locally also. Um, and we haven't talked, for instance, about the disruption of proteins, right? Um, and w- which is also going to happen over the next 10, 15 years. Uh, materials, we're going to need 10 to 20 times fewer materials altogether uh, than we use today. So when we have regions, states, that are essentially autonomous for all our basic needs. Why do we need the center, right? Because, you know, this, the, the, we don't need to, you know, invade anybody for resources. We don't need to import really anything to keep us going for our basic needs. We will import stuff, but not our basic needs, right? Um, so nobody needs to invade anybody because the importance of natural resources is going to diminish. So from a geopolitical perspective, we're talking about the end of geography as you know, being strategic advantage for countries and regions. Um, so when, again, we become autonomous mostly, then why do we need the center, right? Why do we need to pay the center all the taxes that we do? Why do we need to defer decision-making to the center, to Washington? We won't need to, right? We won't need them uh, as much as we need now. Um, So the question is going to be, what is that gonna look like in terms of our relations with with the center? Um, Is Washington capable of deferring, right, to states and regions for, you know, the major economic, social, uh, financial decisions, resource decisions going forward. I mean, would, would, would Washington allow California to have its own currency? Would Washington allow California to have its own immigration policy? Not on a national level, but on a California level, right? State level. I doubt it. And, and, you know, I would say the same thing about, um, you know, China, for instance. So, um, and that is going to mean that, um, you know, there's going to be more, you know, increasing perturbations, right, in in our relationship. And if we don't work to develop a new organizing system, then essentially history indicates that we're going to centralize more. And that's what we're seeing now with COVID. We're centralizing more. We're building walls. You know, we're, 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 we're sending troops to our own cities. You know, these are signs 
of increased centralization in the face of collapse. You know, every leading civilization in the world has been, you know, sexist, racist, and xenophobic. So one sign is the increase in all of the above, right? In racism, xenophobia, you know, uh, 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 and sexism. And that's one of the things we're seeing. So, so those are signs that are saying we're centralizing more. At a time, we're becoming more rigid at a time when we need to be more adaptable and more distributed. Um, so we're missing out on the possibilities or, or, of building the new organizing system. I realize we're coming up on an hour, but I'd love if you have the last minute just to give one final takeaway to our audience. Again, as Brandon mentioned, it's a lot of people in the policy realm. And we are, of course, here in the US coming up in an election. And I don't expect you to opine on who to vote for or anything like that. But what should the policymakers and the policy crafters think about and know as we consider some changes that may happen after this election? What should the next set of leaders consider and take away from this uh, going forward here in the US specifically? Yeah, so um, so we're on the cusp of a brand new production system. I mean, the production system that we're going to have in the 2030s um, is going to be dramatically different from the one that we have today. It's going to be decentralized with local production. Think Internet. Think Internet of energy. Think Internet of food. Think Internet of transportation. So all production systems in the biggest industries, energy, transportation, information, and so on, are going to be information network based um, with local generation, with local production, and global or national design and development. So how do we enable this new system? This is a system that um, if you enable competitive uh, market-driven um, sectors, in energy, transport, and so on, um, it's going to deliver a 100% solar, wind, and battery system, a 100% electric vehicle system, a 100% local food generation system, and so on. But this is not going to be the old system. So any investments that go into conventional generation, fossil generation, uh, nuclear generation, the internal combustion engine automobile, you know, the cow, the livestock industry, and so on, is already stranded. I mean, basically that money is gonna go into a black hole. What you need to do to break through to the new age of freedom is going to be based on consumer first, on citizen first. So the first thing is to protect people because it's gonna be a, an immensely unstable world over the next 10 years. With all pandemics, are the just the first step we're going to have financial crisis social crisis you know environmental crisis and so on on top of the disruptions of the five foundational sectors well i hear above everything else except disruption is coming in fact embrace it or uh you know perhaps be prepared for some chaos to come and it's it's all at once uh, all of those things and you have been right many times before so we have to all pay close attention so uh tony siba thank you so much for your time and coming on with us and speaking with us today tony this is it's such a treat pleasure. such a treat to you know be able to talk to you because, so many more questions uh, we could fan. ask so many yeah, more so many we could go on for hours <laughs> thank you thank you julia thank you brandon thanks for having me 
Well, that is the end of our show. If you have some thoughts and want to tweet at us, head over to poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate on Twitter and let us know your thoughts. Also, if you have a moment, we'd love it if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps the podcast reach more people and possibly get featured on the Apple Podcast platform. So that means a lot and appreciate you taking the time to do that. And that's it for now. Until next time.